Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. While the uh, Problem Makers Caucus, uh, this group of, of Democratic and Republican senators who are most heavily funded by big corporations and special interests, have gotten together and proposed tentatively some outlines that, well, we'll see. We're, we're still learning about it. Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans have actually put forward a proposal. It would let employers injure or even kill their workers and ban any even opportunity for a worker to hold their employer responsible for their disability or death. Specifically, it's intended at COVID, but God only knows how far they'll extend this or once they get it into law, what they'll add to it, right? And it brings back the three martini lunch. That's a phrase that you really have to be probably at least 40 or 50 years old to remember. I mean, it was 1987, as I recall, maybe 84, it's been a while, in any case, when the three martini lunch, you know, when, when the Reagan administration, this was, you know, back in the days of William Proxmire, you know, who I think he was a Republican. I, I might be wrong. Maybe he was a Democrat, but the Midwestern, I think he was from Wisconsin, the senator, you know, the Golden Fleece Awards and stuff like that. And there was all this pushback on the three martini lunch. And so they cut back the meal deduction to where you could only have two martinis. And then, and then they cut it back even further during Jimmy Carter's administration to uh, we ain't paying for any martinis. Well, he wants to bring back the three martini lunch. And all of this in exchange for a one-month extension of the unemployment benefits that are going to expire the day after Christmas. One month. Y'all get one month, your employers get to kill you without consequence forever. I mean, these Republicans in the Senate are actually, in my opinion, trying to sabotage the incoming Biden administration. And as usual for Republicans, you know, we've had this contest on this program for 17 years now. Anybody who can name one piece of legislation that was initiated by a Republican, passed by a majority of Republicans, and signed into law by a Republican president. One piece of legislation that principally benefits working class people or poor people. If you can name one piece of legislation in the last 40 years, I will send you an autographed copy of one of my, any, your choice of my books. 
And nobody has won that prize in 17 years. This is what they do. So they're trying to screw working people by refusing to extend unemployment benefits in Mitch McConnell's new stimulus and, and make it illegal for workers to sue their employers. And, you know, it's been six months since the House passed that $3 trillion HEROES Act that would have given American workers $600 a week. And more than two months since the House passed a slimmed down $2.2 trillion version that would have given unemployed workers an extra $300 a week. Both of them were shot down by Mitch McConnell in the Senate. They both passed the House of Representatives. So McConnell proposed this new stimulus bill that gives workers not $600 extra a week, not $300 extra a week, but $0 extra a week. That is not a typo. $0 ends your right to sue and brings back massive tax breaks for big business. This is just mind-boggling. I mean, we all know Republicans have opposed unemployment benefits since Franklin Roosevelt put them into law. I think it was in 1936 or 37. So it's not surprising. I mean, this is what Republicans do, right? You know, trash unemployment benefits, trash working people, make sure that people like Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue, you know, flying around in their private jets. Loeffler actually owns a private jet. (laughs) <laughs> and living in their gated communities and their fancy mansions and whatever, you know, with their live-in staff and whatnot. I don't know specifically if Purdue lives quite that high, but Kelly Loeffler is the richest person in the Senate. And Mitt Romney's close to a billionaire, so pff, that's pretty up there. I mean, her husband owns the New York Stock Exchange. He's not just like the president. He owns it. So this is what they do. And in addition... 20 million Americans' eviction protections are going to run out at the end of this month. And the McConnell bill and the problem makers bill doesn't solve that problem. They're also refusing any money at all for police, fire, hospitals, and other state and local governments. That's the McConnell uh, proposal. Um, There is money for state fire, you know, uh, police, local governments, etc. Some small amount of money in this proposed $900 billion bill that that the Problem Solvers Caucus is trying to put together. Um, but in McConnell's bill, he says, uh, no, to SNAP benefits. We have one in five children in America is going to bed hungry. Just think about that for a minute. One in five children in America will go to bed hungry at least a couple days this month, some of them for weeks at a time. And what does Mitch McConnell say? We cannot extend or expand food stamp benefits because people lost their jobs because of COVID. Can't do it. Sorry. You know, we got to preserve our tax cuts for billionaires. You may not have food stamps. I mean, this is nuts. They do, uh, McConnell does throw a small bone to education and vaccine distribution, a total of about $200 billion between the two of them. But basically, they embedded a time bomb in there that's going to blow up in Joe Biden's face by making it illegal for the Treasury Department to continue to support the Fed in, you know, supporting the big corporations on the New York Stock Exchange, which could mean that right after the first of the year, the stock market goes to hell. Now, you know, I'm not making a prediction. Don't make investment advice or take, you know, decisions based on anything I say. And then using their, you know, notorious BS talking point about we've got to stop fraud by working people. They completely ignore fraud from corporations and and fat cats. 
The Republican senators want to make it harder to file for unemployment benefits in every state, which will further cripple Joe Biden's ability to stimulate the economy, because the best way to stimulate the economy is not to give a trillion and a half dollars of tax cuts to, to big corporations or six trillion dollars of uh, you know purchasing bonds and stocks as the Fed has done to big corporations. Best way to stimulate an economy is to inject money into the pockets of people at the bottom half of the economic ladder because they will all, or virtually all, spend all of that money very, very quickly, which, boom, gets it into the economy just like that. But this is what Republicans do. I mean, they only exist to serve their billionaire and corporate masters, and their billionaire and corporate masters return the favor by largely funding every Republican member of Congress and every Republican member of the House and Senate of every state in the country or state assembly or House of Burgesses or whatever it may be. This is who they are. This is what they do. So we need to be reaching out. Reach out to Congress at 202-224-3121. Speak to both your senators and your member of the House of Representatives or reach out by email. You can reach out by social media. Uh, You know, send them a letter. Uh, Tell them to put the tens of millions of unemployed and hungry people in America ahead of the three martini lunches and the liability limits for meatpacking plants and giant corporations, you know, warehouse operations and things where where people have been forced to work under conditions that have caused them to get sick and many have died. And those employers are now saying, hey, (laughs) stop my employees from suing me. I just killed a few of them. Um, Yeah, time to end that. Ron DeSantis was on TV saying, well, you know, we don't have to worry all that much about this, you know, mask mandate thing. I mean, you know, look at the states that have mask mandates. Uh, you know, look at Illinois. Look at uh, look at uh, uh, Minnesota. They've, they had a mask mandate and now they people are getting infected there, too. This is absolute brilliance from one of the smartest governors in America, Ron DeSantis. Um, I, uh, along the same lines. I uh, caught this meme the other day. I saw it over on, um, I believe it was Democratic Underground. I'm not sure where where I first saw this, but I've seen it since then. I've seen it four or five different places around the web. And, uh, you know, it's got a picture of a couple of people wearing a mask and, and coats. And it says, I see people wearing winter coats and hats. What a bunch of sheep. LOL. I did my own research and found out that only 1,500 people died from hypothermia in the U.S. last year. That's only 0.0005% of the population. They live in fear of something that 99.9995% of people won't die from. And it gets better. A lot of the people who died from hypothermia were wearing coats and hats, and they still died. Coats don't work. You know, apparently the main Republican message now, right? So, hey, you know, when you go in for surgery, if you're a Republican, just tell your surgeon, ah, you don't have to wear a mask. You can just breathe into my open wounds. Right. Governor Kristi Noem of uh, South Dakota has turned her state into one of the hottest COVID hotspots literally in the world. She says mask mandates aren't the solution. You have to wonder, South Dakota, does she wear a coat when she goes outside? I mean, by Republican logic, coats don't work, right? What these Republican governors are doing is trying to imitate Trump in order to suck up to his basically neo-Nazi crazed, right-wing, hate-radio, marinated followers. They think it's going to help them politically. 
They think it's going to turn them into heroes in the future. And I think that they're going to see what, what we're going to see is the collapse of the Trump coalition, if you want to call it that, or the Trump movement. It's going to collapse just like the Tea Party movement collapsed. And, and for the same reason, because there's no there there. Right? It's all conspiracy theories and weirdness. But in the meantime, the U.S. is averaging 47 COVID deaths per 100,000. Put that number in your brain, 47. Out of every 100,000 Americans, 47 die from COVID. The death rate in Taiwan is 0.03. Three one-hundredths of a person per 100,000 people. In other words, you'd have to have 30 million people to have one death in Taiwan. Or maybe it's 3 million. I don't, I don't do math in my head well. But in any case... Vietnam is 0.04. Thailand is 0.09. China is 0.34. Keep in mind, we are 47.00. New Zealand and Singapore tie at 0.51. South Korea is way up there at 1.02. And Norway has an embarrassing 6.17 people who die for every 100,000 Norwegians. We are at 47. Those were all governments that took COVID seriously, that imposed mask mandates and social distancing, and whose governments protected their people. Here, though, you know, Republicans gave us a a quack doctor from Fox News who was promoting herd immunity. I mean, this is literally the most massive health crisis and economic crisis in a century. And Mitch McConnell and the Republicans have refused to pass any of the legislation that would help average Americans that has come out of the House. And and McConnell has even said one of the reasons why he refuses to pass any of the multiple bills that that they've passed out of the House is that any bill, any COVID relief bill, must contain a waiver of liability for employers who force their employees into situations where they could get COVID, and they do get COVID, and they die. Mitch McConnell wants to make sure that their families can't sue. And there's this bipartisan group of senators right now who are getting together to put together a package. And sure enough, they're going to put in Mitch McConnell's limitations of liability. It's only, however, the compromise is it'll only last for another six months or something like that. The limitation of liability. In other words, there's going to be a window from basically now until maybe the, you know, the time that everybody gets the vaccine, say in the fall. There's going to be this window where if, you're, if your employer can force you into a situation where you get COVID and you can't do or say anything about it and you may not sue. That's, that's the Republicans' price for extending long-term unemployment. They're talking about $300 a week now. Um, Instead of worrying about the 13 million Americans with COVID, the 20 million Americans on unemployment, the one in five American families who don't have enough food for their children, Republicans are pushing liability limitations. I mean, in the last 40 years, every time Republicans take control of government, they give massive tax breaks to the richest Americans. They let corporations increase their pollution and riff off their customers. And they fill critical government posts with partisan hacks. And now they're allowing mass death, whether you call it murder or homicide or manslaughter or simply political malpractice, all so they can serve their first priority, wealthy Americans safely cocooned in their mansions with live-in staff and private jets. You know, people like Kelly Loeffler. 
Had Reagan not told us government was the problem, had the Republican Party not gone down this road, a lot more people would be alive in America right now. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great by Professor Harvey J. Kay, who's a professor of democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. This is from the introduction, page one. We need to remember. We need to remember what conservatives have never wanted us to remember and what liberals have all too often forgotten. Now, after more than 30 years of subordinating the public good to corporate priorities and private greed, of subjecting ourselves to widening inequality and intensifying insecurities, and of denying our democratic impulses and yearnings, we need to remember. We need to remember who we are. We need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who rescued the United States from the economic destruction of the Great Depression and defended it against fascism and imperialism in the Second World War. We need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who not only saved the nation from economic ruin and political oblivion, but also turned it into the strongest and most prosperous country on earth. And most of all, we need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who accomplished all that in the face of powerful, conservative, reactionary, and corporate opposition, and despite all their own faults and failings, by making America freer, more equal, and more democratic than ever before. Now, when all they fought for is under siege, and we, too, find ourselves confronting crises and forces that threaten the nation and all that it stands for, 
Now we need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the most progressive generation in American history. We are the children of the men and women who articulated, fought for, and endowed us with the promise of the four freedoms. On the afternoon of January 6, 1941, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt went up to Capitol Hill to deliver his annual message to Congress. Just weeks earlier, he had defeated the Republican Wendell Wilkie at the polls and won re-election to an unprecedented third term. But Roosevelt now faced a far greater challenge, one even more daunting than those he confronted in his first and second terms. Still stalked by the Great Depression, the United States was also increasingly threatened by the Axis power, Nazi Germany, Fascist Italy, Imperial Japan. And with war already raging East and West, Americans had yet to agree about how to respond to the danger. The president, however, did not falter. He not only proceeded to propose measures to address the emergency, he gave dramatic new meaning to all men are created equal, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We, the people of the United States, a new birth of freedom and government of the people by the people, and for the people. FDR knew about crises, but he knew as well what Americans could accomplish even in the darkest of times. Born in 1882, he had grown up privileged, the son of New York Hudson River Gentry. Yet long before becoming president, he had suffered serious defeats and setbacks, none more devastating than contracting polio in 1921 at the age of 39. The disease left him permanently unable to stand up or walk without assistance. However, supported by his wife Eleanor and other family members and friends, he had risen above the paralysis to become the most dynamic political figure in the United States. Moreover, his experiences and encounters in the course of doing so had reaffirmed and deepened his already powerful faith and confidence in God, in himself, and in his fellow citizens, all of which had enabled him, in the face of the worst economic and social catastrophe in the nation's history, to defiantly state that, The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And then go on to proclaim this generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny. Armed with this faith and confidence and propelled by the popular energies that his words and elections elicited, he determinedly pursued the initiatives of relief, recovery, reconstruction, and reform known as the New Deal. Together, president and people severely tested each other, made mistakes and regrettable compromises, and suffered defeats and disappointments. Nevertheless, challenging each other to live up to their finest ideals, Roosevelt and his fellow citizens advanced them further than either had expected or even imagined possible. Confronting fierce conservative reactionary and corporate opposition, they not only rejected authoritarianism, but also redeemed the nation's historic purpose and promise by initiating revolutionary changes in American government and public life and radically extending American freedom, equality, and democracy. They subjected big business to public account and regulation, empowered the federal government to address the needs of working people, mobilized and organized labor unions, fought for their rights, broadened and leveled the we and we the people, established a social security system, expanded the nation's public infrastructure, improved the environment, cultivated the arts, and refashioned popular culture. And while much remained to be done, they imbued themselves with fresh democratic convictions, hopes, and aspirations. Standing before the American people and their assembled representatives that early January day, the president surely believed their rendezvous with destiny had come. He told them straightforwardly that Americans were now confronting a moment unprecedented in the history of the United States, a moment 
unprecedented because never before had American security been as seriously threatened from without. And he refused to appease those who threatened our nation's safety. The book is The Fight for the Four Freedoms by Harvey K. Tom Harbin here with you on the line with us, Professor Richard Wolff, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, the author of numerous books. His latest is The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, democracyatwork.info, rdwolf with two fs.com are his websites. You can tweet him at profwolf. And uh, Professor Wolf, welcome back. I'm curious your thoughts as we go into this coming legislative session, both the lame duck period and when after Joe Biden gets sworn in, whether or not Democrats have control of the Senate. What are the, the realistic steps that can or should be taken by Congress, by the administration, by executive action, by governors around the country to put our economy back together and make things more sustainable and, and reduce the impact of these cyclic crashes and the idiocy of deregulation of banks like, you know, led us to the 2008 crash or ignoring pandemics, which led us to where we are right now? Well, I think the kind of trick question because of the word realistic that you put in yeah. there. Let me explain. Usually the word realistic is interpreted as though we are bound by the limits of what conventional Republicans and Democrats have been doing, and that any attempt to venture outside that framework is somehow doomed in the beginning, and therefore, quote-unquote, unrealistic. I think I have to break that taboo in answering your question, and my rationale for doing it, excuse me, is that the problems we're facing now are of a different order of magnitude. It would have been difficult to deal with the economic crash if that's all we had, a typical every four to seven year downturn that capitalism has, even a more severe one, which this certainly is. But to have this, the worst in a century, occurring at the same time and in the same country as the COVID virus is completely out of control uh, through the failure of both the private and public sectors to prepare or contain it, that's too much. That's a level of difficulty that requires unusual steps, steps that in the past have been thought of as quote-unquote unrealistic. Let me pick the single one that I would most favor to answer your question. And I choose it in part because we did it once before here in the United States, so it isn't unprecedented. And that is a federal program of mass employment. We did that in the 1930s. Roughly 15 million people hired between 1934 and 1941, uh, before our entrance into World War II. And uh, it saved people's lives, it saved their homes, it saved their self-esteem, and it was a major contributor to getting the United States through a horrific crash without turning to the kinds of fascistic solutions that people who suffered the same crash uh, turned to in Germany, in Italy, in Spain, and so on. 
So that's what I would urge. We should do that. Uh, when people say, well, what would you have everybody do? I kind of smile because I, I, I want to say, are you kidding? Let me give you just a few examples. We don't have testing in this country, even now, of the sort we need to know how to combat this virus. One of the reasons we're not doing well is because we lost nine months when we could have and should have set up mechanisms to test everybody. Hire millions of people, give them the short training they need to administer tests in an ongoing way to keep track of this disease. It's a useful thing to do. Here's a second one. We are losing a generation of people's education, millions and millions of our young people from uh, kindergarten on up through college are not basically getting much of an education. Why? Because we didn't solve the problem. We could have. We could have commandeered the empty theaters, the empty uh, restaurants, the empty stores, created makeshift classrooms, had one teacher for every three or four students, suitably social distanced one from the other, so that real teaching could continue. That would have, of course, required hiring millions of additional teachers, but we have 25 million people possessed of all levels of skill and training and education. We could have found from among them the kind of people that would not only have given them the job they asked for, but given us a continuation of education rather than this very serious disruption, which is going to cost our economy for decades to come. And then there's the Green New Deal, and then there's a proper daycare program to free up young parents, and then there's a program for the elderly so we are decent to people in their retirement. I mean, I'm already taking care of all of the unemployed, and I haven't gotten to a long additional list that a good collection of Americans could come up with in five or ten minutes. That's what we should do. That would put the kind of money into people's pockets, and it would change the atmosphere of defeat, of chaos, of a sense of momentous decline. It would have every kind of conflict uh, easier for us to solve. We wouldn't be looking at the tsunami of evictions scheduled for the end of this month because people put back to work would have the money to pay their rent and make their mortgage payments and so on. So I completely agree with you on all points. And there were 100 million people roughly in the United States when Franklin Roosevelt did that deal. 15 million, that's 15 percent of the workforce. In 1925, during the Roaring Twenties, it would have been unimaginable to say that we were going to start a program for old age insurance called Social Security. We were going to put 15 million people to work through a series of three-letter programs. We were going to have long-term unemployment or even any kind of unemployment insurance. We were going to establish a minimum wage. All of those things were unrealistic to the extreme in 1925. And then 1929 happened, 1930 happened. It cracked open that window and provided FDR with the opportunity. Now we've got a similar crack, in my opinion, and apparently in yours as well. And the question in my mind is whether the Biden administration and the Democrats in Congress are going to rise to it. And I realize that we all play a role in that and that we need to create as much political pressure on them as possible to do so. Just providing them with an economic argument. Do you have any suggestions, uh, you know, memes to promote that might uh, inspire our Democratic politicians, maybe even catch a few Republicans? 
Here's the harshest one I can think of, but it's the only honest one I can come up with. If you don't break out of the mold, if you don't, and I'm talking here about uh, Janet Yellen and and all the others that he's gathered as his so-called economic team, if you don't do the things you didn't think of, using exactly your model of 1929 versus 1925, What you're going to do is preside over a return to the pre-Trump normal that you talk about, and that will recreate the next Trump. It's not a choice between something comfortable and something radical. It's a choice between breaking the mold and doing something radical a la FDR or writing your own eclipse four years from now because you're going to have the same collection of forces only now with a four-year program to overthrow your government. Yeah, and your own political obituary, too. (laughs) That's right. Yes, Professor Wolf, thanks so much. It's always great having you on. Prof Wolf on Twitter, democracyatwork.info, and rdwolf.com on the Internet. Dr. Wolf, thank you again. Thank you, Tom. Dave in Inverness, Florida. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind today? Well, what I suggested to my son, he works for a big bank in, uh, throughout the United States, mostly commercial loans. But anyways, I suggested to him that we have a mini jubilee. Mm. And he, he didn't oh, you're talking about the, the, great, the Trump Great Depression here. Right. And Congress's unwillingness to help people out. Yeah. Right. Did what he I'm know what a jubilee we have, was? We, if we had a if we had a mini jubilee, and he didn't understand what a jubilee is, I said, well, it's in the Bible. Uh, they you know, right. give, forgive all loans and all debts for every 50 years. I said, what we need is a mini jubilee for 30, 60, 90 days. Everybody stays, takes a break and, you know, gets their, you know, they'll have to pay their bills. And he says, oh, well, that's no, kind of what the CARES Act did for, for renters and for people with federal uh, mortgage, mortgage loans. Right. And, and millions and millions of people took advantage of it. And now when this thing expires with no extension and no help and no $600 a week or anything, these people are not only going to be facing this month's rent, but they're going to be facing the rent they haven't paid since they got laid off in April or March. You know, right. uh, It's going to be a disaster. Right. By the way, I always tease my son because he's a bankster, I told him. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> I said, look, I said, he says it won't work. So, but guess what he did for the last six months, Tom? He's been giving forbearance to these big... Now, these are people, million-dollar loans. That's what he handles only, mm-hmm. okay? So, mm-hmm. yeah, he's been giving forbearance to all these guys for, for six months. Well, what about the kids who have, who, who have a, a bill for their education? And, and like you said, the rent and everything. Anyways, and I, that's the other thing I was going to tell you, Tom. I tease my sons. And I wrote this down one time. I express folly through teasing when folly is revealed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there you go. That's a that's a. I got that one time ages. after I meditated. I wrote wrote that out. I, that's not me, by the way. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But I got that after I meditated. I was just looking at my notes from three years ago. So I do that. With so, my sons, so so Dave. They, so they reflect on what they're what they're doing. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the argument that the the counter argument. If if there was a conservative on the show right now, what he he or she would be saying is, um, if you give people. Forbearance, you're simply going to be accumulating debt for them. They're going to have to pay later. If you give them a jubilee, if you forgive that debt, you are encouraging risky behavior. I mean, they've got these nice little slogans, right? Negative incentives and, you know, risk potential and all this stuff. 
But really, what it is is, you know, let's help out the billionaires and the big corporations and screw everybody else. Workers don't need any help. Mitch McConnell made that very clear, you know, when so much of the coverage expired in July. This is just a disaster. Dave, thank you for the call. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Jonathan in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Jonathan, what's up? Hi, Tom. So I'd like to talk about Taiwan, which I believe has the world's greatest system of democracy right now, and it's saved their lives and the reason why they've only had seven deaths. All of this is due to a system they've set up that allows high level of trust. It came from the Sunflower Movement in 2014 and was implemented by Audrey Tang, who is their digital minister. And one of the practical things that they did is that they developed a system to ration masks. And the way they did this was they took the central database of the healthcare system and they gave the data to the citizens. And the citizens in this online platform that they call VTaiwan and GovZero, they developed applications that would allow everyone to know where the masks were in real time so that they could ration them properly. And this is an organic system of government that goes from the bottom up and the top down and develops a system of trust. And this is the reason why we're not hearing about Taiwan. This is the reason no one cares what Taiwan is doing in regards to saving their lives, because what saved their lives is democracy. It's not a vaccine. Yes, we all want a vaccine, but this is the reason why China is forbidding even the word Taiwan to be used on the World Health Organization's website, on their Facebook page. And everyone needs to be learning about what's going on in Taiwan. It's V Taiwan. It's Gov Zero. It's there's a great article about it in Wired magazine called Taiwan's Digital Minister Knows How to Crush mm -hmm. COVID-19, and the answer is trust. 
And that's what I came on to say. Yeah. And you said it brilliantly, Jonathan. I completely agree with you. And Taiwan, I just finished this book, uh, The Hidden History of American Healthcare, which will be out next summer. And in looking at all the various countries in the world's healthcare systems for a chapter on which country has the best healthcare, I came to the conclusion that the best healthcare system in the world is Taiwan. Everybody's in one central database. Everybody has a card that kind of looks like a driver's license with a chip on it. You can plug it into a computer and, and make an appointment with your doctor, get your information. It's transportable. It made it possible for them to do contact tracing instantly, easily, fast. It is a system that really, really works well. And But we have to know, understand one thing. It's not just the top-down system. It's the bottom-up system because the society right. is allowed access to that information. They developed 140 applications on an application programming right. interface, an API. You're and right. Yeah, and while they keep individual medical records private, all that other information, yeah. You're, yes, you're they, right. they keep them all private, um, and, and that's one of the reasons why, one of the things they did in the nightclubs, they managed to do contact trace anonymously mm-hmm. by keeping the nightclubs open, and so they closed that down. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Jonathan, thank you. Tom in Kirkland, Washington. Hey, Tom, what's on your mind today? I just wanted to dovetail with your conversation with Professor Wolf about the uh, significant change in economic policies between the mid-20s and the first uh, Roosevelt administration. And what I wanted to say was that I believe very strongly that if the Republicans would have held the White House and um, their economic policies would have continued, that not only would this country have not made it through the depression it probably would have been far worse but we also would have not been prepared to fight world war ii i think i can't imagine what would have happened to the world if if that was the case and i feel also very strongly that we're in a very similar situation right now with the trump policies towards the economy and within the last year of basically letting everything go down the toilet, it's going to take a similar, you know, economic policy to what Roosevelt did to pull us out of this. And I think that we have big things coming down the pipe as big as World War II that we're going to be dealing with, like climate change and other things like China, Russia, who knows? So we got to have our ducks in a row. we got to be prepared to deal with that. Yeah, and Donald Trump has brought this country to its knees, you yeah. know, and I personally Indeed. believe that he actually is acting intentionally as an agent of foreign powers. He's acting as an agent so. of Russia in, in protecting their interests and feeding them intelligence. He's acting as an agent of Saudi Arabia in protecting them politically in the Middle East. He's acting as an agent of the United Arab Emirates and shoving weapons to them. He's acting as an agent of Turkey for, you know, in, in stabbing the Kurds in the back. The list could go on. He's acting as an agent of China in many ways. And, of We've course, still doing business president. there. Well, let me just finish this, Tom. And in um, every case, he's doing it because there's money in it for him. 
You know, Absolutely. he wants to build a Trump Tower in Moscow. The Russian oligarchs backstopped his loans through uh, Deutsche Bank. He's got business. I mean, you know, he's got Trump Tower in Turkey. I mean, in every single case, he has either been bought off, bribed or threatened or blackmailed by foreign governments. And not just him, by the way. Jared Kushner is in that same category, as well as his daughter, Ivanka. And God only knows what Uday and Kuse are up to, Don Jr. and Eric. But I think that that's a really important point. I'm sorry, Tom, what were you trying to say? I was going to say that never in the history of our country that I'm aware of has a president treated our intelligence services so shabbily. And not only that, but forfeited our intelligence in the very cavalier way that Trump has done. It's really he he doesn't even take intelligence briefings. I mean, it's crazy. And why would the president of the United States refuse to take intelligence briefings? And, you know, this is legendary. I mean, it's in several books now that whenever they would mention Russia in the briefings, he would blow up and, and, and throw them out of the room. And so they just stopped yeah. mentioning Russia. And yeah. I'm guessing that probably if they if they brought up Saudi Arabia or Turkey or any of the other countries that he has financial yeah. arrangements with, You know, he would similarly blow up. And I mean, we have a criminal and I believe an agent of foreign powers in the White House. And we need to make sure that he doesn't have access to intelligence after he leaves the White House, because I'm of the opinion that he will sell it. This guy is desperate. He's a billion dollars in debt. Four hundred million of it is personally guaranteed. And he's looking at his empire crumbling around him. You get these conservatives saying, oh, but half of America loves him. No, 27 percent of America voted for him. You know, his 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 MAGA rallies and groups are like one less than one percent of America. It's it's enough to have a close election. That's the scary part. Yeah, it's a really dangerous time for our country right now. I'm I'm very It is very dangerous. We are on the edge of the Thucydides trap, and we need to take it very, very seriously. Thanks a lot for the call. Len in Woodmere, New York. Hey, Len, what's on your mind? Hi, I was listening to you before, and just repeating it again about not really having to listen to uh, Trump voters. They don't make up a large percentage of the country. But I think it really is the opposite that we have, I mean, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, have to go out into these hills and mountains where the people who came down just to vote live, and they thrive in an environment that we as urban dwellers don't really get. And they're the ones that need to be part of the solution in terms of building infrastructure, whether it's you know, broadband and schools and nursing homes in their areas. And Joe Biden and Kamala Harris also have to go there to get them, you know, they've got to look at the maps of 2022 and who are the Republican senators who have to get on board. You know, we don't need a majority if we can get Republicans to vote for infrastructure. And, you know, he's... Len, respectfully, I disagree. I don't think we need to get Republicans we need to bully Republicans, shame Republicans, point out their well, games, I mean. point out how they're robbing us, point out how Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue have made millions off this pandemic while screwing the citizens of their state. I mean, Georgia still, I believe, has not expanded Medicare, for God's sake. You know, these people don't give a rat's ass about working people. And then also we need to break the stranglehold in every red part of this country and in all of the swing states 
of hardcore right-wing talk radio. And I'm not talking about federal laws or anything like that. We need entrepreneurs. We need people to be starting radio stations and opening low-power FMs and whatever it may be. You know, so that if you're driving across Wyoming, instead of hearing 11 different right-wing talk show hosts from border to border, you can hear a progressive voice once in a while. There's not a single progressive station in that state. You wonder why they elect Lynn Cheney? I mean, you know, that's where you begin. You uh, Len, thank you. But I'm very concerned about Democrats who say, we need to bring in Republicans. Let's just compromise with them. And I realize, Len, you weren't saying let's just compromise with them. You were saying let's go after them or let's defeat them. But I'm telling you, you can't do that until you change what people think they know. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Back with more of your calls in the news of the day in just a moment. We're putting together a series of American history books. It started with a hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment. Then we had the hidden history of the Supreme Court, the betrayal of America. Then the hidden history of the Republican war on voting. The hidden history of monopolies, how big business destroyed the American dream. And then next spring, it's going to be the hidden history of oligarchy and tyranny. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Sarah in Minneapolis. Hey, Sarah, what's on your mind? Well, my hats are off to all the healthcare workers. I am a healthcare worker. I work in the hospital system here in Minneapolis. I'm a physical therapist. And I'm really concerned about the long-term impact on our workers and the moral injury with this pandemic. I mean, I already you know, I know saw that a piece, our healthcare... I just give you one bit of data that may be helpful. There's uh, an article in the BBC. It just came out. It's by Palab Ghosh, and the headline is COVID-19 Lung Damage Identified in Study. And what they found, this is a relatively small study, and none of these people had been intubated. None of these people had even been in an ICU. They were all sick with COVID, but none of them required, you know, heroic measures or anything like that. So they had, they had COVID, but they didn't have a really bad case of it. 80% of them have what looks like permanent lung damage. 80%. And they didn't even realize it. You know, a couple of them were still short of breath, but most of them didn't even realize it. So this disease wounds people. I mean, this, people need to take this seriously. Trump and his buddies, you know, saying it's just like the flu have been just lying through their teeth. Anyhow, back to you, Sarah. Yeah. Well, the other thing, you know, as a physical therapist, what I do is I try to expedite and plan discharges for patients from the hospital. I see patients post-COVID infection, and they're incredibly disabled. The ones that I see are are going oh. to be long-term. Um, you know, they've... Uh, they were on the vent for three months, and they have a tracheostomy, and their kidneys failed, and their lungs are trashed, and um, and they're and they're uh, you know they're they're not going to get their pre-existing life back. Those are the people that I'm seeing. They survive, but they're incredibly debilitated. But also, part of it is I plan these discharges for patients, and I'm having to make decisions because the hospital desperately needs a bed. And, um, mm. you know, trying to get them to home and the home care agencies are filled. They can't take any more clients. Also, just the moral fatigue within the staff as we're trying to manage. I mean, no healthcare system is prepared. 
even the most functional healthcare systems in the world cannot. Taiwan's compare. was. Well, right, because they kept the, the, the virus under control. They've had a total of 230 deaths in the entire year because they right. have a national health care system and they did testing and contact tracing on day one. I mean, they started this on January 20th or 21st was when Taiwan had their right. first death and when they put this program into place. Right. But we don't have that here. We have a terrible right. system. <laughs> and it's bringing out every disparity there possibly can be. And then my, my other question, too, is what can be done going forward when we have a very for-profit system? But that's a whole other thing. But right now we're in the yeah. deluge right now. And just send out something to the healthcare workers. I don't know what how we're going to recover and return to this field and not be deeply traumatized by what we're also yeah. experiencing, too, no, on the I, front I line. totally get it. Two of my kids work in the local hospital here, and it's, it's getting scary out there. It's getting real scary. Sarah, thank you for the call and thank for you. the information that you shared with us. I appreciate it. John in Minneapolis. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? The new Republican Party is essentially a product of right-wing hate radio, Internet hate stations like Fox News and QAnon. You know, it, it's it, it, this is just crazy. John, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. It's, it's, all, it's all good stuff, and I, I appreciate it. John in Portland. Hey, John, thanks for listening to X-Ray FM. What's up? China was the first one to get this outbreak. They totally got it under control. They tackled it with a modern health care system, and they had it wiped. By February, Xi Jinping said to Trump, he said, you catch it by breath. Mm-hmm. We had, oh, Trump take, told that to Bob Woodward. Yeah, 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 Bob Woodward. It's going to take the West a year to accept it. He had, she had no reason to lie, and he was right. correct. It was a month later before the first article came out recognizing the possibility of aerosol transmission by a professor, Lisa Brousseau, who's got 150 articles published, retired professor of uh, infectious diseases. She's, her article was, con- was entitled... COVID-19 transmission messages should hinge on science. They didn't. They were, the CDC was still talking about touch. They ignored her. Right. It was like a, two months later before the Lancet and medical, you know, recently, major medical, mm-hmm. still talking about the possibility of aerosol transmission. When they still, and the only difference between aerosol and droplets is the size of the particles. There's no reason yeah. to think that they wouldn't be small. It's like, and now sure. China has a vaccine. Yeah, and they've already vaccinated millions of their people. China has been doing this for several months now. They've been vaccinating people. You're absolutely right, John. And most of their cities are completely back to normal. They still have a problem up on their border with Russia in the far northwest. But, I mean, Vietnam's got this thing under control. A lot of countries have got this under control. And, uh, you know, spot on. It's just the incompetence. And I would say malicious incompetence, because I think this goes back to that meeting on April 10th in the White House where Jared Kushner said, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post just released on April 7th or April 6th that most of the people who die from this are black people. And it's happening black, mostly right, in right. blue states. And right. we can make the blue state governors look bad. We should we should stop our efforts. At that point, they were actually planning efforts to you know distribute masks and and every the post office in fact it was almost a done deal they had the stuff printed for it and everything here's your five masks you know every citizen in america was going to get five masks from the post office and they just pulled the plug on the whole thing it's mind-boggling john thanks for the call richard in ypsilanti michigan hey richard thanks for watching free speech what's up 
Yeah, hi, Tom. I was wondering what you would think of victims or families of victims of the COVID to uh, file a class action lawsuit against Fox News for their complicity and the misinformation that, about the uh, virus. I believe, I believe there have been several independent lawsuits. If not, there have certainly been accusations in the press. But mm-hmm. class action, I don't know how classes work. I, I know that it's fairly, you know, typically to be a member of a class in a class action against a corporation, you have to have been a customer of the corporation. You have to be able to demonstrate uh-huh. your relationship to them and the way that they harmed you. I don't know. But if it's possible and legal, I'm guessing some lawyer somewhere is trying to figure it out, you know, how to do it right now. It's an interesting idea. Richard, thank you. Fascinating stuff. Anyhow, Tom Hartman here with you, speaking the truth the multinational corporations would really rather you didn't know all about. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Health Justice Now, Single Payer and What Comes Next by Timothy Faust. And this is from the introduction. A secret scream rings through America. It rings down the sterile fluorescent hallways of our hospitals. It rings over our rural towns and our native reservations. It rings through our prisons, the bellies of our great cities. It rings in our farms and our fields, our streets and our sewers, our bodies and our blood. And we are cursed to never hear it clearly until, at last, we realize it has been our own mouth screaming and we are lost. A child born today inherits, in that secret, a new American squalor. The skeletal remains of the American cities, the bleached bones of the American suburbs. This secret is a birthright of continual exploitation, pumped for labor and drained of cash and then punished for the resulting suffering. Punished for being hungry, punished for being sick, punished for being pregnant, punished for being poor, punished for being black or brown, punished for being queer, for being unlucky, for being... At the base of that suffering is lodged a little truth, like a knot in the stomach. In America, sickness makes you poor, and poorness makes you sick. This is a book about that relationship and why it happens, and why it's unnecessary, and what we can do to fix it. The cosmic whirling of God's great slot machine has not determined that some people are fated to suffer while others flourish. We have the resources to take care of everyone, and yet we refuse to do so. Your medical debt and medical bills are unnecessary, but we have chosen to make them necessary. These are structural problems with structural causes, and many of them share roots in how we pay for health care. This is a book about health care and health finance. They are different. Health care is anything that helps you stay safe and healthy. It's a kind of freedom from and within your own body. Health finance is the method by which we as a country pay for that freedom and by which we decide who gets to have it and who doesn't. Health care is more than what happens to you in the hospital. Health care is whether your home makes you sick, or your food makes you sick, or your environment makes you sick, or whether you have enough money to afford the things that keep you healthy. In America, the structure of corporate health care has convinced us that some people deserve health care and some people don't. This is a book about that corporate health finance, about private insurance and private insurers. For half a century, they've convinced us that they're the only things that keep us or could ever keep us from the utter financial ruination of illness. They've sold us different inadequate insurance plans and 
persuaded us that this is a form of great liberty while chipping away at our freedoms for profit and holding our bodies and our children's bodies hostage. This is a book about single-payer health care, a health finance model in which we pool our abundant collective resources to provide health care to all people. It is a common model across the world. As we will discuss in this book, we have the potential not just to enact a single-payer program in America, but to build the greatest health care program among any so-called developed democracy. Here is my profession of faith. I believe beyond any doubt that single-payer is demonstrably sound and imminently feasible. I believe a properly ambitious and well-structured single-payer program will do more than any other American social program of this generation to soothe the burns, to resuscitate the spirit, to nourish the moral will of the American people. I believe it will loosen the loathsome manacles of American health finance, an exploitative institution that profits by plundering from us our own bodily autonomy, and that anchors the larger exploitation that holds those whom we love as captive leverage to guarantee our servitude to abusive employers or domestic partners, to those who seek to dominate us both in the office and in the hospital. I believe this nation owes its people, whose labor has created its rich banquet, the safety and agency of health care. I believe this health care is greater in scope than that which happens upon an operating table. I believe that housing, food, income, and more, the components of basic human dignity, are health care. And I believe our work is that of striving toward justice for all people. And I therefore believe, I have to believe, that single-payer health care is our moral imperative. Single-payer is our tool. Single-payer is our weapon. Single-payer is our first step. But single-payer on its own is not the goal. This book is about health justice. Healthcare is personal, so I want to start this book personally by introducing two friends of mine, Steve Way and Kyle Kolick. They're two guys about my age, I'm 30, who live in North New Jersey. They're sweet, gentle people and probably the most charismatic pair of friends I've met in my entire life. They make me laugh until my face hurts and we like watching pro wrestling together. They're also being utterly broken by our American healthcare system and it's keeping them from living their lives. Steve has muscular dystrophy. The muscle and tissues that hold his body together are eating themselves. He's doing pretty good, all things considered. He beat his original life expectancy of 18 and now probably has a long life ahead of him. Steve needs a wheelchair to move and a ventilator to help him breathe. The book Health Justice Now, Timothy Faust. Thanks so much for being with us today and uh, throughout the week. Thanks to Louise, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Halbert, Dave Fulton, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Strauss, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, and Jabbermocky, all the folks working on this show. Thank you, and thank you for being with us. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.